Latin and South America have incredible amounts of artifacts and ruins that teach us about their beautiful and complex ancient civilizations. Names like Aztec, Mayan, and Inca are household names. From ritual pyramids to intricate burials to beautiful art, pottery, and instruments, the pieces of culture left behind by these ancient people have been great supplements to the written information that clue us into the past. But what if we go so far back that there is no writing? What do archaeologists and anthropologists do when they uncover a complicated and sophisticated culture long past, but all they have are bits and pieces to put history back together? How do we know how accurate their conclusions are? Can we really decipher what pottery art and burial pieces really mean? Or, when looking for meaning, what if we find lines dug into the sand 2,000 years ago, lines that spanned hundreds of square miles, a planned project of a civilization long extinguished with no guidebook of intention? Welcome to Nishi History, where we eschew the most famous tales and spotlight the lesser-known stories, the forgotten names, the interesting places, and the random topics of history. With me, Jessup Riggs, we'll dive deep into the archives and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of history. Today's is the story of around 300 square miles of lines etched into one of the driest areas on Earth. It's the story of an ancient Peruvian civilization and their geoglyphs that are unmatched in their extent, magnitude, quantity, size, diversity, and ancient tradition. Today is the story of the Nazca Lines. But first, some background. Before we can really understand the Nazca Lines, let's discuss the civilization attributed to the creation. And I don't know why I'm having such a hard time saying civilization. I caught myself that time, but I am going to leave it in because I have a feeling I'm going to mess it up a lot. And this is going to end up being like a Benedict Cumberbatch penguin situation. So bear with me. Modern Nazca is a city on the southern coast of Peru. There is also the Nazca province, which the city is in. The province is a system of valleys, also on Peru's southern coast. I've attached a Google Maps link in the episode description so that you can go see where Nazca is now, the city, as well as the Nazca lines that we're going to discuss later, and the distance between the two. But the city and the province got their name from the Nazca civilization, who inhabited this system of valleys between circa 100 BCE and 800 AD. So nearly a millennium these people were here. And also a little history jargon explanation. Circa is around, so we're not entirely sure the exact years, but it's around that time. Um, BCE is before Common Era, and then AD is in the Western world. It's kind of the idea of like after Christ. Okay, so for those studying the Nazca people and culture specifically, look for four distinct eras of the civilization's lifespan. First is Proto-Nazca, or Phase 1, which is from 100 BCE to 1 AD. Second is the Early Nazca, or Phases 2 through 4, and that's the next 400 years of the Nazca people. Third is Middle Nazca, or Phase 5, that's years 450 to 550 AD. And then finally, late Nazca, or phases 6 through 7, which is the final 250 years, so from 550 to 750 AD. 
I want you to be aware of these different phases because they are important when you're doing a deep dive into the Nazca culture, but we're not going to go any further into them today here. I'm just going to walk you through a general overview of the society, culture, and religion of the Nazca people so that we can have the knowledge we need to examine and appreciate the Nazca lines a little later on. So the World History Encyclopedia estimates that at its height, the population of the Nazca was around 25,000 people who lived in small villages. And this is actually a really fascinating part of the Nazca culture. A lot of ancient civilizations that we have discovered in the modern times and studied, they have like a king or a god king or some kind of centralized ruler and government that ruled over their, their whole land. But it seems that the Nazca, was, they were instead a lot of these small villages, which are also known as chiefdoms. And then each of these chiefdoms had their own leader, but they shared religion and culture, and they seemingly came together for rituals and other religious activities. So it's still a cohesive civilization. It doesn't seem like it has the stratified classes that we're used to seeing in ancient civilizations. Um, I only read of two major urban centers attributed to the Nazca people, and really only one is talked about by most sources. And this is Kahuchi. I am so sorry for the butchered pronunciation. I know I'm not saying it right. I'm sorry. No, I'm trying. Kahuchi is 50 kilometers from the coastline and covers around 150 hectares. So that's over 370 acres. So it's a huge site. And originally, it was thought to be a capital city of the Nazca people, but there was no discovery of domestic architecture, so no huts or houses or anything. And with more study and understanding of the Nazca social structure, so aka none of that centralized society, it's much more likely, and it's now the most accepted interpretation, that Kahuchi was a religious site. This is where all the different chiefdoms would come together for burials and offerings and religious celebrations. What also made Kahuchi so critical to the Nazca, and it is tied to their religion as we'll see later, is that the city was one of the very few areas around the Nazca civilization with a guaranteed water supply, as it's on the south bank of the Nazca River. The World History Encyclopedia believes that this water supply is actually probably a main reason why Kahuchi was sacred to the Nazca people. Water was a focal point in the Nazca civilization, much more than it is for people who have constant, reliable access to usable water. Because we all know that we need water to survive, but when, but it's easy to take for granted when you have constant access to that. These people did not. The Nazca province is an arid, incredibly dry area. It gets less than one inch of rain a year. So for that reason, the Nazca religion formed around water, about praying for working irrigation and crop prosperity. Before we dive into the Nazca religion, though, I do want to shout out the Nazca people for their incredible irrigation system. They're in the earliest years AD, and they were able to build an entire network of underground aqueducts and cisterns for water storage during dry seasons. Of course, these were pretty rudimentary. I'm sure they still ran out of water all the time, but the fact that they had these networks at all is incredible. But let's move on from geography to religion. 
like I set up, the desert environment really did shape Nazca religious beliefs. Donald A. Polks, who wrote Nazca Ceramic Iconography, an overview, explained that, quote, Nazca religion centers on agricultural fertility and on the forces of nature that control their destiny. Powerful creatures of the sky, like the condor, the earth, like the feline, and sea, like the killer whale, were thought to oversee the availability of water, the fecundity of the land, and the growth of crops, unquote. Also, when talking about the Nazca religion, it's important to understand that it's not set up in the way the West or much of modern civilization would understand it. They didn't have like cemented human-figured gods, plural, or a god, capital G. Instead, they attributed spirits and powers to the natural world around them. These objects span from mountain peaks to sacred rocks and powerful creatures. So we can tell that the Nazca held nature in a really high esteem because it's depicted in all of their forms of art. And the Nazca people are widely considered the best textile makers and master pottery makers from the ancient world. So the natural world was their religion. And that's what they would sacrifice to or dedicate rituals to. And that's who they would ask for water or ground fertility was nature. With that said, the Nazca people painted an anthropomorphic quote unquote mythical being. That's what Prolix titled it. And that mythical being embodied the spirits and powers of the natural world. It's kind of hard because this isn't our main focus, it's kind of hard to separate this mythical being from gods like we see in ancient Egypt, because obviously those gods aren't completely human. A lot of them are half animal, half human, and they have very specific roles. A lot of them are tied also to the environment, because Egypt is also a really difficult environment to survive in. But the mythical being does function a lot differently than the gods of ancient Egypt, as far as, you know, anthropologists can tell, where, where it doesn't seem like these mythical beings were worshipped. I think they were just a way in the art to depict the spirits and the supernatural power that the Nazca saw in the natural land. Uh, but if that's something you're interested in, I encourage you to go do some more research on that specifically, like how did the Nazca religion function? Because it's really fascinating and their art is incredible. Anyway, so there is this recurring figure throughout Nazca art who comes in a variety of forms, but always has the signifying features of a gold mouth mask with whiskers, a diadem, which is a type of crown that sits on the forehead, and this figure is also carrying a trophy head. And we will get to those in a second. <laughs> okay, so with the understanding of the geography and the religion, let's talk briefly about the social and cultural behaviors that we know. A lot of the information I learned about how the Nazca people functioned as a cohesive civilization comes from Donald A. Prolux paper. Of course, as always, it's linked in the episode description, so go check it out. It's a great paper, and it also has a lot of pictures of the pottery and other iconography Prolux studied. 
He took the art of the Nazca people left behind and inferred by placing and frequency the role that these types of people played in the society. First and most common, according to Prox, is the warrior. The battle scenes are pretty gory, with corpses, blood, and all sorts of rituals surrounding trophy heads. The frequency of the warrior and that head-taking is in all of the warrior depictions, exemplifies that both aspects were key to the Nazca culture, which means that we do need to talk about trophy heads. (laughs) It's a little grim and a little gruesome, but we're just going to skim over it, so buckle up and stay with me. In simplest terms, trophy heads are ritualistically preserved human heads. Prox believes that they symbolize Prox believes they symbolize death and regeneration. In the Nazca pottery art, plant and trophy head imaging were pretty interchangeable. If there was one, there was more often than not the other. A lot of research has gone into the Nazca trophy heads and the various trophy heads that have been found and or depicted in art. So go take a look at the sources if you want to learn more, but I'm going to call it good here. (laughs) After warriors, farmers, and agricultural rituals are the second most popular scenes, and the rituals are the important part of these. The The agricultural rituals are actually usually the farmers drinking because there's a a very specific drink that archaeologists and anthropologists believe the Nazca people drink Um, and it's from a plant that has like a hallucinogenic effect so they think that's what's being depicted with these. Next, Prolks also brought up an interesting point of what is absent in the artifacts of the Nazca culture. Because there's no scenes of dominance and subordinates, we come to the conclusion of a more level social organization, aka there's no elites or god kings, just all the small chiefdoms, and so we don't have the class-based society. We can also assume that the Nazca was a patriarchal society because women are rarely in the art, and so are the activities that are often associated with motherhoods, like cooking, childcare, and weaving. Prox noted that Nazca art focused on supernatural and military themes, so these were clearly the most important aspects of their society. Alright, so we will leave it there for now on the Nazca people. This is not by any means a full or an in-depth look, look at them, but I think we've got enough to move on to their unfortunate end. 500 AD, so 600 years into the Nazca civilization's lifespan, Nazca started to decline. There are a couple theories for this, but really they all revolve around the environment. The British Museum poses that deforestation and increased fighting could have forced the Nazca people to relocate. Deforestation for agriculture also could have exacerbated flooding problems from an El Nino, For context, an El Nino is a climate pattern where we see the unusual warming of surface waters in the eastern Pacific Ocean. The trees seem to have been really important for the landscape because it prevented river and wind erosion and also created that protection from flooding. So without that protection, the bare landscape was open to the effects of the El Nino, which some believed eroded the area, drived up the Nazca aqueducts, and forced them to abandon the Nazca area. 
Whatever the natural or human-made disaster, by 800 AD, the Nazca society was completely gone. So, why did we just spend 20 minutes talking about the Nazca people? Well, what they're most famous for are the incredible Nazca lines. They were declared a UNESCO, or a United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization site, in 1994. The individual designs inside the Nazca lines are also known as geoglyphs, a term meaning drawings in the earth. The British Museum said, quote, they transformed the rocky terrain of the desert into a sacred space and could only be seen in their entirety from the sky, end quote. I just love that language of that quote, but I know it's super vague and you don't really have all the information to understand it. I just couldn't help myself. You need a little teaser. For a more in-depth physical description, I am turning once again to Donald A. Prolix, who gave a great description of the Nazca lines. Quote, These Nazca lines or geoglyphs consist of geometric forms as well as some 30 bimorphs or naturalistic motifs. The geometric figures can extend for several kilometers in length, while the biomorphs often are the size of a modern football field. End quote. And when he's saying football field, he is referring to an American football field. So they were first discovered by Toribo Mije Espe, a Peruvian archaeologist in 1927. He found them on foot, but the Nazca lines are so huge and cover such a wide distance that it wasn't until the 1930s, when air traffic was more accessible for the area, that the lines got the attention they deserved and people started mapping them. And when I say the Nazca lines are huge, I mean, like Prolix said, some of the animal and human images were as big as an American football field, and some of them were as tall as the Empire State Building. Now, all the sources had slightly different numbers for how big the whole Nazca lines area really is. World History Encyclopedia estimated the total combined length of the Nazca lines at 1,300 kilometers. NPR quoted 280 square miles. Live Science said 170 square miles or 450 square kilometers. Palomar gave us a rectangle of 27 miles long and 5 miles wide. And then finally, UNESCO claims that the Nazca Lines area is 450 kilometers squared. I would say out of all of them, even though they're all reliable sources, like I trust all of them, I would trust UNESCO the most because they did determine that the Nazca lines would become a UNESCO site. And I'm assuming that process included measurements. So if we're going with 450 kilometers squared, just to try to put that into perspective, that's about 85,000 times as big as a football field, an American football field. It's about 55,000 times as big as the Seal Island. It's about 40,000 times as big as Trafalgar Square, and it's about 10,000 times as big as Federation Square. So yeah, it's huge. As always, go to the Instagram, historyniche underscore podcast, to take a look at these lines. There are one or two pictures with the road and cars in the pictures as like a reference point so that you can see how big these are. And then... I know I'm hounding on and on about how big they are, but remember that they are 2,000 years old. Like It's just astonishing. 
The Nazca lines are clearly connected to the Nazca people that we just talked about because the lines directly reflect the Nazca art. I have seen both the pottery art and many pictures of the Nazca lines, and you can clearly see the artistic resemblance. So there's no doubt that the Nazca people created them. The animal symbolism we briefly touched on earlier, how the Nazca people believe different animals help different parts of life and nature, are reflected in the Nazca lines. According to National Geographic, quote, spiders are believed to be a sign of rain, hummingbirds are associated with fertility, and monkeys are found in the Amazon, an area with abundance of water, end quote. The different types of imagery are too many to list, but I will add here that there was a killer well, which was a huge animal in the Nazca culture, many mythical beings, uh, but I don't know how many trophy heads are included in these massive renditions are there, as well as nature scenes like plants and flowers. Finally, there are a lot of geometric motifs, so wavy lines, spirals, rectangles, triangles, you know what shapes are, <laughs> you get it. In total, there are over 800 straight lines, 300 geometric figures, and 70 animal, plant, and human designs. How the lines were made is actually pretty straightforward. The Nazca people removed the top layer of the earth, which was like a rusty color, and exposed the lighter soil beneath. So by removing the top 12 to 15 inches of earth and rock, that light-colored sand was revealed, creating what National Geographic called negative images. So they literally are lines of light sand in a rusty colored desert. So how is the sand possibly staying in place for 2,000 years? For the British Museum, quote, the favorable climate conditions, being very dry, windless, and stable, have meant that many have been preserved until the present day, end quote. The climate is so stable and dry that they're just undisturbed. So that's the what and the how. And those are the easy questions to answer. Going into the why, it gets a lot more complicated. Because the Nazca people didn't have a written language, we don't really know why the Nazca lines exist. We just know that it was this huge coordinated project that took many, many people and just as much time. I read in one place that some archaeologists believe the Nazca lines took a thousand years to complete. So... If that's true, basically the Nazca people might have worked on these lines for the entire lifespan of their civilization. A couple of theories have been put forth for the why, but as we go through them, just keep in mind that we don't really know. These are just educated guesses. One use might have been for rituals. Some research suggests that the Nazca walked all over the lines. They could have done that as a part of a ritual or celebration. The British Museum said that, quote, evidence of human activity has been found along the geoglyphs, including the discovery of ceramics, offerings, and possible remains of building structures, end quote. So the compacted soil, which equals evidence of heavy walking, and the evidence of human activity beyond the heavy walking, could lend evidence to the Nazca lines serving as a sort of Mecca or holy space or like a ritual slash celebration center. Another theory is that the Nazca lines worked as a form of communication. Some suggest that the straight lines led to other valleys and the recognizable symbols found on the mounds and hills were some kind of message for those passing through, perhaps. They also could have been a spiritual map just for the Nazca people themselves, pointing to sacred sites and locations and water resources. 
maybe it was a collection of all three, or maybe they just got really bored one day and all the leaders of the chiefdoms got together and decided to create the world's biggest doodle page. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know the why, but that we know the what and the how is still pretty damn cool. To round off today's episode, I want to talk about the destruction and the preservation of the Nazca lines. As a UNESCO site, the Nazca is entitled to a historical site prestige that should be protected. The Peruvian people also feel a strong connection to the Nazca lines, and the government has been very vocal about protecting this unique part of Peru's past. But even with their best efforts, within four years, these 2,000-year-old geoglyphs were damaged twice. The first situation happened on the 9th or 10th of December of 2014, and this was the Greenpeace trespassing and graffitiing. Graffitiing is the only word I can think of, but basically what they did is the environmental group, they were trying to get the attention of the Global Climate Program in Lima, 419 kilometers north of the Nazca Lines. Delegates from 190 different countries were meant to be there for these environmental talks. So Greenpeace went into the restricted areas of the Nazca lines and placed down yellow cloth letters that spelled time for change exclamation point. <laughs> the future is renewable Greenpeace. It's a great message. Anyone who knows me knows that I've kind of become a freak about climate change. Um, and I'm all for any type of sustainability that we can do. But it was a horrendous, disgusting execution. It's a true slap in the face at everything Peruvians considered sacred, said Luis Castillo, as reported by The Guardian. Peru is incredibly selective about who they let into the Nazca Lines area, especially so close to the specific lines like the Greenpeace advocates were. I posted a picture on the Instagram, but basically there is a mockingbird image created in these Nazca lines and they, and I believe they crossed a straight line to get to the mockingbird and then they placed the cloth letters right under the mockingbird's beak. So they are like intimately interacting with these Nazca lines. Not even presidents and cabinet ministers were just allowed in. So even the head of the country had to gain authorization to go into the Nazca lines. And when they were given this authorization, they had to wear special shoes. The special shoes were a must, 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 because any footprints will last hundreds of thousands of years. Again, from The Guardian, a quote from the culture minister, Castillo, quote, they are absolutely fragile. They are black rocks on a white background. You walk there and the footprint is going to last hundreds of thousands of years. And the line that they have destroyed is the most visible and most recognized of all. Unquote. Because yes, when the Greenpeace advocates went into the restricted areas of the Nazca lines, they weren't wearing their special booties and they definitely weren't showing the kind of care a 2,000-year-old artifact should be shown. What this led to was the Greenpeace advocates disfigured a line and left their grubby little footprints all around the hummingbird geoglyph they put the cloth letters by. The second moment of destruction came on the 27th of January, 2018. 40-year-old Jesus Flores Vigo, driving a semi-truck trailer 
ignored warning signs, according to multiple sources, and drove through the site. NPR reported three days after the damage, quote, the rig left deep scars across a 50 meter by 100 meter or 164 feet by 328 feet area, the culture ministry said, affecting the surface of the ancient site and damaging three of the geoglyphs, unquote. So Vigo was arrested that day, but quickly released because there was no evidence that he had acted with intent. Now, I don't I don't think he was intentionally trying to destroy the Nazca lines. I've heard that he had mechanical problems and that's why he drove off the road. And I've seen that he drove into the desert to avoid toll fees. I tend to believe the latter because I hate anyone who destroys a historical site, whether intentional or not. And him destroying it for a selfish reason makes me feel better because it makes Vigo easier to hate. I couldn't find what happened to Vigo after he was released in February of 2018. I just know that he had a court hearing scheduled in the latter half of 2018 and that the Peruvian government wanted him in jail for nine months of preventative detainment and they wanted him to pay a fine of 1000 550 American dollars or 5,000 Peruvian souls, which according to National Geographic, 5,000 Peruvian souls is about three and a half times the average monthly salary in Peru. They really wanted to punish him. I don't know if any of that actually went through. I really tried to find it, but I just couldn't. But we are not going to end this on a sad note. Despite the setbacks, preservation efforts are strong around the Nazca lines. Throughout 2019 and 2020, the Nazca lines were photographed from the air by drone, and the research from those photos, which has already revealed new, new glyphs in 2022, will be used for an AI-based study of the Nazca lines for their conservation and protection. And all that research from 2019 and 2020 came from a Japanese university that starts with a Y. I don't remember what it's called, but I did want to give them credit. The UNESCO site has a whole section about the protection of the Nazca lines. The responsibility is placed on the Peruvian government, but, quote, documentation, research, protection, and dissemination activities are being performed through the implementation of national and international research projects and civil associations in the territory of Nazca and Palpa provinces. A management plan that has a very long Spanish name that I'm not going to try to pronounce. I'm very sorry. Look it up in the sources. For the entire area, which is fundamental in the protection of the lines and geoglyphs, has been formulated and is being implemented. Unquote. So the Peruvian government is really on it. They are really trying to protect the site. They're doing everything that they can. And it seems that despite the two setbacks in the 2010s, the Peruvian government is taking big steps to increase the security and to continue to conserve this incredible site. To round off, I want to read the important statements from UNESCO. So basically, their why for making the Nazca Lines a, a UNESCO site. Quote, For nearly 2,000 uninterrupted years, the region's ancient inhabitants drew on the arid ground a great variety of thousands of large-scale zoomorphic and anthropomorphic figures, and lines or sweeps with outstanding geometric precision, transforming the vast land into a highly symbolic, ritual, and social-cultural landscape that remains until today. 
They represent a remarkable manifestation of a common religion and social homogeny that lasted a considerable period of time. End quote. All right, folks, that's it for today. If you enjoyed this foray into the ancient past, please like, rate, comment, leave a five-star review, all that. It means the world if you could do that. Then go take a look at some of the geoglyphs on the Instagram, nishihistory underscore pod. And while you're there, go ahead and follow so you're always up to date. If you have any historical stories, people, things, places, whatever that you'd like to hear me cover, please email me at nishihistorypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to explore your Nishi history stories together. I hope to hear from you all, and I will see you next week, where we'll open another time capsule to a Nishi tale in history. Bye-bye!